And thank you all for being with us online and in person. We appreciate you so much. Uh, Today, we are bringing our three-part series to a close. The series has been called Jesus Begins. And in this series, we've been taking a look at the origins of Jesus' ministry, how all this started. So really, we've been focusing on that time before he starts preaching, before the miracles happen, seeing how this whole thing got started with Jesus, before he ended up on the radar of the religious establishment, the very beginnings, before he called all 12 of his disciples. How did this whole thing start? So we've been going through that topic the past several weeks. We started out with a message called Grace Plus Truth Equals Love. And if you missed that message, I'm going to just plead with you again to check that out. You can listen online. You can listen through your podcast app. Uh, You can watch the video. It's available on our YouTube page. Uh, But the reason that I'm pleading with you to check out that content is because it's so essential to understanding who Jesus is. In week one, we talked about the fact that the disciple John introduces us to Jesus by telling us that Jesus is filled with both truth and grace both grace and truth, that he's filled with both of those things. And that's so important to understanding who Jesus is. It's so important in understanding how we are to live and how we are to behave as Christians, that we must also be filled with both truth and grace. And it's very vital to understanding what it means to be a part of Hope Community Church. You know, as a church, you can describe us in a few different ways. We are a non-denominational church. That's true. We are an independent church. That's true. But really, more than anything else, we are a grace and truth, church. Truth is knowing there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as wisdom and folly. Grace is not being offended by the fact that other people sin. Grace is compassion and understanding, and we need both of these things. We cannot compromise on truth. Jesus didn't. And we cannot compromise on grace. Jesus didn't. And so we have to live into this being a grace and Truth Church. And so once again, I make that appeal. If you missed that content, please check that out. You can catch up online. Last week, we talked about how Jesus introduces himself to us. And so week one is how John introduces us to Jesus. Week two is how Jesus introduces himself to us. And Jesus did not go to his local synagogue and call a meeting and say, hey, by the way, I'm the Messiah y'all been waiting for. Let me tell you what this is, how this is going to work. No, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't go to the temple and, and request a meeting with the Sanhedrin so they can test him and say, okay, You want to kind of like validate that I'm the Messiah. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus goes to where people are gathering to hear John the Baptist preach. John the Baptist was this opening act for Jesus. John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the people for the message and the ministry of Jesus. And so John comes preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people, like all all of the countryside, it goes out to hear John preach this message. And the people, they go forward and they stand in this line, and they confess their sins to John. And John preaches that this is what God cares about, genuine repentance, not just going through the motions, not just saying you're sorry, not just presenting your sacrifice, but genuinely desiring to change. I'm done doing that bad stuff. It's hurting me. It's hurting other people. I'm done doing that, but more importantly, I'm done being that person. I want to change. I want to repent. And the people line up to be baptized by John. And Jesus, as he introduces himself to us, he shows us what grace looks like. He stands in that line with the sinners. He stands in that line with the people who needed to confess their sins before John. And that was a risky thing. That was a risk. Grace is risky. To live out grace is risky. Because people walked by that line, and they saw Jesus in that line, 
And they thought to themselves, what's going on with this guy? Isn't that the carpenter's son? I thought he was a good man. Well, he's in that line with all those sinners. He must have done something. Do you know what he did? I don't know what he did. Oh, he's with those sinners. But he was willing to associate himself with us, with sinners. Because guess what? That's, that's who we are. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. So this is how Jesus introduces himself to us. Today, we're going to consider and take a look at how Jesus calls his first disciples. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, this takes place uh, quite a while ago. This is back uh, January of 2008, you know, the before time, before COVID. Um, at that time, I had just started working for uh, Bethlehem Church, which is in Glen Mills. Uh, it's actually in Thornton. Does anybody know where Thornton is? That's why I say Glen Mills, because most people just know where Glen Mills is. So it's out that way, all right? And so I just started working there. And uh, that's a crazy story. I, you know, I applied. I got this job as the director of children's ministry, and then they decided they were going to make me a pastor, so that's how this whole thing happened. Um, but I was there for about a month, and I was completely, I can admit this now, I was completely overwhelmed with my responsibilities there. And the expectation, somebody made a sad face, with the expectations people put on me, because all of a sudden, they throw that pastor title on you, and people expect you to act like a pastor. I still don't know exactly how to act like a pastor, but we're figuring it out. We're finding out. And so I'm there for about a month in that church. They had a group of people take a trip all the way out to sunny California. In fact, it was rainy the whole time I was there. I'd never been to California before. It was rainy the whole time I was there. And so we go out to Orange County, California, because they were having a conference at Saddleback Church. Is anybody familiar with Saddleback Church? I know at least one. Okay, Saddleback Church, okay. Uh, Rick Warren is the founding pastor of that church. Uh, he's the dude that wrote Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church, um, some Christians like to bash on Rick Warren because that's just something Christians like to do. But I consider Rick Warren somebody who's done a lot for the kingdom, who's done a lot for God. I don't agree with every word he said, but he's done a whole lot in evangelism and spreading the gospel and helping people find Jesus. And so very impressed by what he's contributed to the kingdom. And so here I am, all of a sudden, thrust into this pastor role on a plane, going out to California, doing this conference thing. And I got to hear from Rick Warren. He spoke at this conference, and I'm like, wow, there's the guy. I read that book. I read this book that this guy wrote. It's like a famous book. So I read these books, and uh, so we went to the conferences, and that was great. And then that Saturday night, we went to a church service because they have multiple services on Saturday night, multiple services on a Sunday morning. And I'm just like walking around this campus thinking, I didn't know church could be this, right? I didn't know that, could, that was even an option. This huge campus, multiple worship facilities, Oh, you can walk into this type of, I don't know, did they call them sanctuaries? I think it was just a worship facility. You go in, right? You've seen it, right? You go in, there's this huge auditorium. Like, I don't even know it could be like this, right? Now, that's not, by the way, just as the point of clarification, that's not our journey as a church, right? That's not who we are, but it's who they are. And it was really amazing just to see the power of, of, of God. You know, someone who's willing to follow God and that visionary, Rick Warren, bringing this to Orange County and the amount of lives that were changed and the amount of other churches that followed that pattern, just, just in awe of what this is. And so we walked into that Saturday evening service, and we were early getting there. So we were early walking into that service, right? But that service that happened before ours was running late. So we thought we were walking into a new service. We were actually walking in the tail end of the previous service. Everybody with me so far? All right. So we walk in the main doors, and my group, they kind of go off to that, to that side there, and I'm just kind of hanging back in the back. I'm by those main doors. And I look to my side, and there's some guy with a beard and a Hawaiian shirt standing there. And I look again, and it's Rick Warren. It's the man himself. 
Like if I would have done this, I would have tapped him on his shoulder, right? Or maybe his forehead. I'm not sure how tall he is. But anyway, he was, he was, right, he was right there. And I was like, ooh, that's him. I could just turn to him right now and shake his hand. But what would I say? Ooh, what do I do? Do I say, hey, I'm a pastor too. Like, what, what am I? I just was like, yeah, I've been a pastor for a month. Nice to meet you. Like, what, what do you do in that moment? So I tell you what, I was just, I was too intimidated. I was like, ooh, I just walked away and found a place to sit down. I was too intimidated to say hi to him. Just couldn't do it. I mean, this is a man who's accomplished so much for the kingdom, and who am I? Not worthy to meet Rick Warren. Have you had experiences like that? When you come face to face with somebody, and maybe it's somebody that you respect, maybe it's just a professor or like a, a teacher that you've heard on the radio or something like that, somebody that, or like a celebrity, you see that person like, wow, I could, I could shake this person's hand, but I'm just too intimidated. Have you felt that way, right? Was anybody a teenager in the 90s? Anybody remember Wayne's World? Wayne and, there we go. Wayne and Garth, they meet Alice Cooper, and Alice Cooper's like, yeah, stay, hang out with us. And what do they say? Ah, yes, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. This is too weird. I'm too intimidated by you. So many of us know what that feels like to be overwhelmed. It's like, I'm just, I'm not even, I can't even say hi. What am I going to say? I'm like, well, you know, you know, Holly and I have talked about this a lot. Like, what if we ever met Andy Stanley? What would we say? We want to say something cool to Andy, right? What would we say? What if we're on a plane somewhere and there he is? What would we do if we talk about that? It's like, I don't know. I'd probably say nothing. But I think we know what that's like to just feel overwhelmed by that, to feel intimidated or feel scared to meet somebody or to even be in their presence. And so you take that feeling that so many of us have experienced and you amplify that by, I don't know, a million or so. And this is what Simon experiences when he meets Jesus for the first time. We're taking a look at this passage that's in your bulletin that Tom read for us. Luke 5. And I'm going to back this up a little bit. It begins with verse 8 in your bulletin. I'm going to start with verse 1. But this is Jesus calling his first disciples. And so I've mentioned before that this whole thing we're going through, this Jesus Begins series, we're not covering all the details of the life of Jesus. That would take a whole lot of time, and that would be a great thing to do, but we're not doing this this time around. And so what we know is last week we saw Jesus baptized. After that point, he is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, which is something you should read about. Very important experience in the life of Jesus, this preparation time. He's going into the desert, doesn't eat or drink anything for 40 days. And so he comes out of this experience and he begins to teach people. So let's see. Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. You notice this in Luke's gospel that Luke does not record for us at this time, not in this chapter. He doesn't record for us. Well, what was Jesus saying? What was he preaching? Luke just says it's the word of God. So he's preaching some kind of truth. Perhaps he was just following up with John's message, this message of repentance and how God values repentance in order for sins to be forgiven. And so they were crowding around him. So he's at the water's edge. People are crowding around him. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. Okay. And so let's fill this out a little bit. Let's paint this picture for you. So we meet Simon here. Now Simon, here's what we need to know about Simon. Simon is later renamed Peter, okay? And so Jesus gives him a new name later on, but as of right now, he's still Simon. Simon's got a brother named Andrew, and Simon and Andrew, they were fishermen, and that was their life, and that's what they did. They worked, Simon and Andrew, they worked with two other brothers, guys named James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
And so these four guys, they were fishermen together. They were partners together. They, they worked for, you know, catching fish. You know how fishermen, you catch fish. That's what a fisherman does, right? <laughs> you catch fish and they sell them. That's your job. So they all worked together catching fish, selling fish. Now this John, right? James and John were brothers. This John had been a disciple of John the Baptist. Are we tracking so far? So John the fisherman, who's a partner with Simon, had been a disciple of John the Baptist, all right? That John, John the disciple, becomes a disciple of Jesus. So John the disciple of John the Baptist becomes John the disciple of Jesus eventually. We all tracking so far, right? There just weren't enough names back then. Most of the people were named John or Mary back in those days, okay, just to make it fun for us. So here we go. You got the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then you have Simon, who will be named Peter, renamed Peter later on, Simon and his brother Andrew, four fishermen. So Jesus is there, he's preaching, he's speaking the word of God, and uh, the crowd is, is kind of closing in on him, and so he hops into the boat belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore, and then he sat down and taught people from the boat. And so I don't know, you know, there's, there's some things not absolutely recorded in scripture, some things aren't covered there, I don't know exactly how that went, if he just steps onto the boat and says, hey... I'm Jesus, nice to meet you. Can you take me out a little bit into the water? Because I'm trying to talk to all these people, and it's like they're right up in my face. And so if I can get a little bit of distance, maybe I can address everybody all at once. Could you do that for me? So Simon said, oh, all right. Now Simon and Andrew and James and John, they had just been fishing overnight because that's when you would fish. You fish overnight. And they had not caught anything, so it was kind of a, you know, a, a sad morning. They weren't exactly enthusiastic about it. Oh, great, we caught nothing. That means no money. No fish equals no money. And so there's Simon, he's been up all night, working all night, here's this teacher comes along and has this message, and people want to hear what he has to say, and so he gets on a boat, and Simon takes him out, and Jesus sits on the boat and begins teaching the people. Now those boats were less than 30 feet long, right, probably like 25, 27 feet long, and so there's Jesus sitting on the boat teaching, and somewhere, somewhere probably like, you know, not too far away is Simon, just like Hi, I'm here too, right? This kind of awkward, this awkward front row seat for whatever Jesus is saying, Simon's just like, okay, I'm there. <laughs> How uncomfortable would that have been, right? But there he is, and he's listening to the teachings of Jesus, and the crowd is listening to the teachings of Jesus. So at some point, Jesus is finished, and he dismisses the crowd, <clears throat> and let's go from here. Let's see what happens. Verse 4 of chapter 5. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets. Let down the nets for a catch. And so this didn't make sense. It was the wrong time of day to be fishing, and they had fished all night. They hadn't caught anything. And so Simon could have said, listen, rabbi, why don't you stay in your lane? All right, you're a rabbi. I'm a fisherman. You do what you do, and I do what I do. But hear what Simon says. Simon answered, Master, hold on a second, already, <laughs> calling him master. Simon has experienced something. Simon has heard something in these teachings of Jesus. He's had this experience. And whatever this experience was, it led him to, to refer to this, this Jesus, maybe the first time he's ever met him, maybe not. These are early days. He's a master. He's already addressing him as Master. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
because you say so. You're clearly a man of God, and I don't know your whole story yet, and I don't know if you're the Messiah or not, and I don't know if you're a prophet, but you're clearly a man of God. But because you have said so, I'm going to do this thing that doesn't make any sense. Because you have said so, and I'm calling you master, that means I'm some kind of servant, that means I listen, that means I obey, I'm going to do what you have said. When they had done so, verse 6, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners, James and John, signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled their boat so full that they began to sink. Wow. If you're a fisherman, and you're collecting all this fish, all these, all these fishes, what are you thinking? Cha-ching! Payday! Let's get these fish to market. Let's make some cheddar, right? Let's do this thing. Whoa, look at all these fish. I hope our boats don't sink. There's so many fish. And so Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, they get the boats. They make it back to the shore. And when Simon Peter saw this, verse 8, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, go away. Go away. Now, he didn't say, hey, listen, Jesus, can you come fishing with us every day? Because this is great. You know what I mean? I'm going to be set for life. Just stick with us. He says, go away. Why? Go away from me, Lord. Again, he calls him master. He's already calling him Lord. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I'm not worthy. You're a man of God. And if you only knew my story, maybe you do, Jesus. Maybe you do know my story. If you knew who I was and my heart and my past and my sin and my disobedience, and the hurt that I've caused other people, and the mistakes that I've made. If you knew, if you knew these things, you wouldn't even step stepped into my boat. You need to get away from me. You're a man of God, and I am not. Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. This feeling that, that Simon, Simon Peter had, I mean, it was appropriate, because he was standing there, and he didn't re- realize it was the Son of God yet. He didn't realize it was the Messiah yet, but he was standing there in front of a man of God, And he felt this sense of of just not being worthy. He felt overwhelmed by his own fallenness, his own sinfulness. So he says, you need to get away from me. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. So Jesus, being God and knowing all things, speaks into Simon's heart what's causing this this, this statement of go away from me, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's like, don't be afraid. There's fear there. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, <laughs> and followed them. Some people say, well, okay, they got to the shore. Maybe once they got to the shore, maybe they sold all the fish first, right? And they would have had some money to fund their travels, and then they went on their way. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Because they left everything. Free fish, help yourself. We're going to follow, we're going to follow this guy. And so Simon looks to his brother Andrew, and they look to James and John. And he's like, whoa, did we just get an invitation to follow this rabbi? It sounds like we did. What did he say? He said he's going to make us fishers of people. What does that mean? I don't know. Let's go find out. Boom. There they go. Wow. James and John turning back to their dad. Hey, dad, we're going to go follow this rabbi guy. Okay, pack a lunch, whatever it was. Like, we're off. And we're off. Where are we going? We don't know. I guess we'll find out when we get there. 
Wow. It was about, oh, actually it was over 20 years ago that I, uh, I read the biographies of Jesus for the first time, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the one thing, that, one of the things that fascinated me and confused me, and I still find this very interesting to this day, is like why these guys, right? The disciples that Jesus called, what, what makes them so unique? What made them so special? Why did he choose these guys? What did they have in common? So I've realized when you look at the disciples, you look at the people who follow Jesus, they have certain characteristics, they have certain things in common. One thing is a willingness, a willingness to follow. Uh, Jesus can work with that. A willingness to follow. And they're also obedient. If Jesus says, take your boat out, okay, I'm going to take the boat out. Jesus says, follow me, we're going to go. I mean, those two things are interrelated. They're willing and they're obedient. All the disciples have that in common, at least at first. We know what happens to Judas. But at least at first, they all have this in common. Willing to follow, ready to obey, right? Willing to follow, ready to obey. And so I said, I, would t- I, I taught on that for, for you know, several times over the years. I taught on these qualities that the disciples have. They've got this willingness. They've got this obedience. And then about five years ago, something occurred to me. There's another characteristic we see in the disciples. It's very important. It's humility. It's humility. It's, it's, it's <laughs> because you can't be willing to follow and you're not going to be ready to obey if you're not first humble and realizing that Jesus is Jesus and we are, we are not. Look at Simon's genuine humility on his knees. Get away from me. I'm not worthy. I'm a sinful man. Humility is key. Note takers. Here's one for you. Don't, it's a simple. Don't underestimate the power and centrality of humility. It is central. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a believer, humility is central. When you think you've got it all figured out, you're done. When you think you've got it all figured out, you're done. Humility is central. Likewise, when it comes to pride, Don't underestimate the destructive nature of pride. Don't underestimate it. You know, I don't know who all was there that day when Jesus was preaching from the boat, but statistically, it's likely that people walked away, some people walked away from that encounter thinking, I don't know about this Jesus guy. What makes him so great? He's a rabbi. I don't even know who trained him. Who gave him authority? Why is he even teaching these things? I don't know. I don't need to hear from him again. It's likely that people walked away thinking, ah, this isn't for me. Not Simon. Simon recognized this is a man of God. Pride. Pride goes before the fall. I think I read that somewhere. Book of Proverbs 16, Proverbs 16, 18, I believe. Pride goes before the fall. Don't underestimate the destructive nature of pride. Don't underestimate the power and centrality of humility. We see that in Simon, Simon Peter. Just a few days ago, I was chatting with, uh, with Corey Brown, our pastoral apprentice, and I was sharing some of, the, um, some of the phenomenon you experience when you're a pastor. And there's a thing that I've experienced over the years that I find very, very encouraging. And I was telling you about this, Corey, how sometimes I'll interact with someone who is um, my senior, right? Who's older than me by perhaps several decades, right? Someone who's in that grandparent stage of life, talking late 60s, 70s, 80s, somebody like that. And when I share an idea with this person that's, that's new to them, they don't automatically reject it. 
Say, you know, I've been a Christian for longer than you've been alive, but let me consider this. <laughs> I've been a Christian for longer than you've been around on the planet, but, but, but maybe, maybe there's some merit to what you're saying. Let me consider this. So I never thought about it that way. When you see that humility, that is so encouraging to see someone who's advanced in years still willing to be transformed and grow, still acknowledging I've got room to grow. Man, I want to be that. I want to be that at 70, 80, 90. I want to be that, to have that willingness, that openness. I also told you, Corey, remember this? I told you on the other end of the spectrum, there's the pride thing, right? It's wonderful to see the humility, but sometimes you get the pride thing. And I've had those interactions with people who have been Christians for like, I don't know, six months who think they've got it all figured out, right? And they want to tell me everything I'm doing wrong as a pastor. I've been around for, you know, I've, I've read some of the Bible by now. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong, pastor. Whoa! <laughs> that pride. I've got it figured out now. That pride. In First Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells us that pride, here's what he says. He says, not, I should write this stuff down. Should I? He says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. Alexander Pope is credited with the saying, um, a little knowledge can be dangerous. <laughs> a little knowledge can be dangerous. And I'll tell you what, when I encounter somebody, when I encounter that phenomenon with someone who's brand new, someone who's green, someone who's new into Christianity, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with being new. We were all new at one point. Being new is fantastic, right? To have that encounter with somebody new who thinks they have it all figured out, yes, it's a little bit frustrating, but I can't help but smile to myself because once upon a time, I was that guy <laughs> that had that little bit of knowledge and was all puffed up. Man, you should have seen me back in my first year of Bible college. Woo! I had it all figured out, right? And at that time, I was looking for a new church, and we were in those worship services, and be like, I'll tell you everything the pastor's doing wrong. Boom, wrong, 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 wrong. Are you kidding me? I was all puffed up with knowledge. So let me ask you, when I was in that stage of life, all puffed up, all puffed up, do you think I got anything out of those services that I attended? No, I was just critiquing, critiquing. Was I growing? Was I changing? Was I learning? Was I becoming more and more Christ-like? Was I engaging in this confirmation process where I'm being shaped and molded? No, I'm just critiquing. Wrong, 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 wrong. Oh. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up to embrace to embrace humility. I've got a long way to go. And here's the thing about us Christians. We're great when it comes to this general humility, or what I call cheap humility, where we say things like, I've got a long way to go, and I've got a long way to grow. But then when we come face-to-face -face with something we need to address, whoa, that's different. Now you're getting specific, right? Oh, now you're really testing my pride here because you're getting specific about something I need to adjust in my life. I need to adjust in my heart. Well, we don't like that as much, right? We can stick with that general humility, but that specific points that we need to address really test our hearts and test our pride. Knowledge can puff up, but love, love builds up. Jesus has been, um, well, this is an understatement. Jesus has been criticized. Of course he has. Jesus said a lot of things that made people uncomfortable. Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners. and He was called out by the righteous people, you know, the members of the religious establishment, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, the whole lot of them. He was criticized by them. Why are you spending all this time with sinners? Why are you breaking bread with sinners? And on one occasion, Jesus answers that question so plainly. He says, well, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. Are you picking up what I'm laying down here? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus says, I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, some people struggle with that. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean you don't love those people who are, who are you know, self-righteous? What's going on, Jesus? You're not here to call them? No, it's not about that. It's just very, very practical. I mean, think about it. Here's what, here's what you know. You can't lead somebody that does not want to be led. It's a very practical thing. You go back to that fishing boat experience where he's out there preaching and all those people are listening. If someone doesn't want to be led, they're going to walk away and never see Jesus again. You can't lead somebody that doesn't want to be led. It's not as if Jesus doesn't love the self-righteous. He does. He died on the cross for all of us. But you can't just practically speaking. What's Jesus supposed to do? How can he, how can he work with that? Right? Willingness, obedience, humility. Oh, Jesus can work with that. Oh, he can work with that. If you have someone who in their pride is not willing to be led, you, can't, you cannot lead someone who does not want to be led. You cannot lead someone that does not want to follow pride. Pride prevents us from following when it's time to follow. There is a time to lead. And there is a time to follow. And pride prevents us from following when it's time to follow. You cannot teach somebody if they do not want to be taught, right? I've got it all figured out, right? Young Josh Schaefer, first year of Bible college, I had it all figured out. You couldn't teach me anything. I knew it all already. You can't teach somebody that doesn't want to be taught. Let me say it a different way. You can't teach a know-it-all because they already know it all, right? You just can't. Here's another one. You can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. Oh. Have we all been there? And you're just watching and you're seeing and you love this person and you want to help. You want to put them back on that right path. You want to intervene. You want to do something. But you just, you can't, you can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. You can't heal somebody that does not want to be healed. I'm talking about a spiritual healing. I'm talking about emotional healing. Pride prevents us from receiving help when we need to be helped. Pride prevents us from receiving healing when we need to be healed. We just dig that. We dig ourselves into that pride hole. My goodness, we are all susceptible to it, and we've probably all done it, where we just get stubborn, and we dig ourselves in that pride hole, and we refuse to change our position. Man, we live in a time of such extremes, and people take these extreme positions, and they won't change their mind. doesn't matter what you say to them. They'll just dismiss everything else you have to say. I'm just going to stay right here. Digging that hole, digging that hole, digging that hole, that pride hole. Goodness gracious. And we're all susceptible to it, and we can all slip into it. One of the things that all of us have in common right here and right now, we've all been hurt by somebody else's pride, and we've all suffered the consequences of our own pride. If you stopped and thought about it for long enough, you'd realize that. Pride. It prevents us from following when it's time to follow. It prevents us from learning when it's time to be taught. It prevents us from receiving help when we need to be helped. It prevents us from receiving healing when we need to be healed. But humility, oh my goodness, think about that. Humility is just the opposite. You see here in Simon that humility. Okay, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to follow. What, am I, what are the orders? I'm going to obey that humility, recognizing, huh, recognizing his position. He wasn't wrong. 
when he said, I'm a sinner. He wasn't wrong. But to know there's somebody that can show me the way and to find your way out, wow, humility changes things. Let's not, listen, church, let's not be content with that general, cheap humility. Let's be genuine in our humility, right? It's the missing ingredient. It's the missing ingredient from our Christianity. Let's be genuine. Let's be open to being led when it's time to follow. Let's, let's be willing to learn when it's time to be taught. Let's receive that help when we need to be helped. Let's open ourselves up to healing when we need to be healed. Let's let go of pride and embrace humility because I tell you what, Jesus, Jesus can work with humility. Jesus will lead us when we're willing to be led. Jesus will teach us if we're willing to learn. Jesus will help us when we're willing to be helped, and Jesus will heal our hearts when we're willing to be healed. Let's pray on that. Jesus, thank you for your patience with us. You know our shortcomings. You know our humanity. You know that we've all suffered the consequences of our own pride. And Father God, we believe that you've called us to humility. Jesus, it's true that, that every single one of us, we've got, we've got room to grow. There are things we need to change in our hearts and our lives. There are wrongs that we need to right. So please, God, free us from our pride. Just free us. Give us that willingness to, to own our mistakes and to, to truly and genuinely repent. Lord Jesus, we know, we believe that you love us. We know that for a fact. You love us. And so allow us in humility to fully and freely receive that love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.